the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. May his grace and his blessing be with us now and unto the age of all ages, amen. I greet you, dear brothers and sisters, on this, the fourth Sunday of the Blessed Coptic Month of Paope. And this morning we heard the magnificent account and the powerful gospel reading that comes from Luke 7, verses 11 through 17, which spoke about a widow and her only son and their encounter with our Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior entered a city of southern Galilee called Nain with his disciples and a great multitude. And at this point, we see a stark contrast. On the one hand, a great crowd is entering the city joyfully with our Lord Jesus Christ, the life of the world. And on the other hand, coming out of the city is a great crowd leaving with sadness and mourning because a dead man, the only son of his mother, who was a widow, was coming out in a funeral procession. Now, why was the crowd leaving the city with sadness so great? Why did this young man who died have this large procession following him? It's because of the tragic circumstance that happened here. One of the worst things that could happen to a woman in the ancient world, in the Jewish world at least. This widow had lost her only son to death. He was her only support. He was her only joy. Without him, she had nothing left. And he was swallowed up by death in the prime of his youth. And in those days, it was actually common for people to hire other people, professional mourners, so to speak, to come and to weep at funerals. But this widow didn't need to hire anyone because the whole city accompanied her in this funeral procession outside the gates of Nain because of their great sympathy towards her tragedy. Now when our Lord saw her, he had compassion on her, and he said to her from the midst of the crown, Do not weep. And then he touched the open coffin so that those carrying it stood still. He then manifested his glorious divinity to all by commanding the dead young man, I say to you, arise. This young man was then raised from the den in front of both of these great crowds at the gate of Nain, and our Savior tenderly presented him back to his mother. Now, with God's grace, I would like to meditate with you on this beautiful and powerful story in only three points. First of all, let us speak about the compassion of God. As we know from the Holy Scriptures, death is the greatest enemy of mankind. In his first epistle to the Corinthians, the Holy Apostle Paul, he tells us the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Along with sin and the devil, it is the enemy that we cannot overcome by our own power and by our own efforts. How wonderful it is for each and every one of us today to know that when we confront our greatest enemy, death, we have a God who is compassionate, a God who weeps with us, a God who sympathizes with us, a God who consoles us. In the Old Testament, the holy prophet Jeremiah spoke about God's compassion when he said, Though he causes grief, 
yet he will show compassion according to the multitudes of his mercies. In today's gospel, our Lord Jesus Christ, he raised the only son of a widow because he had compassion upon her. The Greek word that the holy evangelist Luke uses is a special Greek word that describes a loving compassion that comes from the innermost depth of a human being. So you know in Greek, Greek is a much richer language in English. So for example, in English, we have, for example, the word love. Well, love could mean I love hot dogs, but it could also mean I love my mother. And those two loves are not exactly the same. At least hopefully they aren't, right? So in Greek, you have many words for compassion. But the word that Luke uses in today's gospel account is the, a rare word for compassion that refers to a compassion that comes from the innermost depth of a person. This was not a superficial compassion that our Savior felt. It came from the heart of God. Our Savior, who himself was the son of a virgin, had compassion on the son of a widow. As Saint Ephraim the Syrian teaches us, he became like a sponge for her tears and as life in the face of the death of her son. What was the cause of Christ's compassion towards this widow? On the one hand, he saw this poor widow deprived of her only son who was her support and her joy. On the other hand, however, there is a deeper reason for Christ's compassion. When he saw that young man lying dead, he came face to face with death. And this is something that we should think about because at this moment, it is as though our Lord came face to face with our greatest enemy. This is the same compassionate God who wept in front of Lazarus' tomb before he raised him from the dead. When we read that story, we oftentimes think that our Savior wept in front of Lazarus' tomb because he felt sorry for his friend. And that is true. But there's also a deeper reason why our Savior wept in front of Lazarus' tomb and why he had compassion on the son of the widow today. It is because at that moment, he came face to face with the great enemy of mankind, which is death. Our Lord, who himself is the source of life, gazed into the dark abyss of death, and he saw how it had ravaged mankind since the time Adam and Eve disobeyed God and brought the sentence of death upon themselves and all of us, their ancestors. And when our Savior came face to face with death, our greatest enemy, he felt compassion towards us from the innermost depths of his pure heart. For this reason, Christ, the living God who cannot die, accepted to taste death on behalf of every person. This is why in our beautiful hymnography, and especially the Trisagion hymn, we proclaim, Holy God, Holy Mighty, Holy Immortal, who was crucified for us. Well, this is the paradox of paradoxes. 
the immortal God, the source of life himself, the one who cannot die, tasted death for each and every one of us. He accepted to be crucified, to lie dead in a tomb, to be buried for three days before rising from the dead in order to give us the gift of life beyond the grave. This is the amazing compassion of God towards mankind in the face of our greatest enemy, death. Second, let us speak about the widow in today's Gospel reading. In terms of other women in the Holy Scriptures, the widow of Nain is in good company because when we read the Holy Scriptures from cover to cover, we will discover that most of the recorded cases of raising the dead were done for the sake of women. Does that surprise you? It shouldn't, because there is a deep meaning behind that fact. Let's talk about the accounts of the raising of the dead in the Holy Scriptures. There are, dear brothers and sisters, eight accounts of raising from the dead or rising from the dead in the Holy Scriptures. And seven of them come before the resurrection of our Savior. The first one is found in the book of Third Kingdoms, which in the Protestant Bible is First Kings. And this happens when the holy prophet Elijah raises the son of the widow of Sarepta. The second is in the fourth book of Kingdoms, which in the Protestant Bibles is Second Kings. And this happens when Elijah's disciple, the holy prophet Elisha, raises the son of a Shunammite woman. And these two stories, by the way, are a prefiguration of what our Lord Jesus Christ did in today's Gospel reading. The stories are very similar. These holy prophets raised the sons of two widows. But there is a crucial difference. Whereas Elijah and Elisha must pray fervently to God and work hard to raise these young men from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ raises the son of the widow of Nain simply by the power of his word. Christ did not pray long or labor to raise the child as Elijah and Elisha did when they raised the youths from death but rather he uttered a single, simple command. In fact, in today's gospel, it was a mere four words. Young man, I say to you, arise. It's four words in Greek. So he raised the son of the widow by his own power as one who has complete and sovereign authority over life and death. He raised her son as the Lord over life and death. And this brings us to an important side note. I will come back to the rest of the accounts of the raising of the dead in a minute. But as a side note, I want to point out to you, especially today, as we celebrate the feast of the Holy Evangelist Luke, that this account that we read today comes from Luke chapter 7. Would it surprise you that before this point, Luke chapters 1 through 6, Luke does not use the word Lord to describe our Savior. He does not address him as Lord. The first time St. Luke addresses Christ as Lord is today in Luke chapter 7. 
Why is that significant? Well, we know that the Holy Scriptures are infused with the breath of the Holy Spirit. And the fact that St. Luke uses the word Lord in this account of our Lord's raising of the son of the widow of Nain is a commentary that he is the Lord over death, that he has sovereign and absolute authority over life and death. And this is why St. Luke uses the word Lord to describe Christ for the first time here. So that is a sidebar just to consider. Now the third account, we talked about the first two, Elijah and Elisha. The third account of raising someone from the den happens through the bones of Elisha. After Elisha dies, we read in the book of Four Kingdoms, which again is Second Kings in the Protestant Bible, that his bones are placed on the body of a dead uh, soldier, and that soldier is raised from the dead. The fourth account in the Holy Scriptures about someone rising from the dead is today's account in Luke 7. The fifth is the raising of the ruler of the synagogue's daughter in Mark 5. The sixth is the raising of Lazarus, which was done at the request of Mary and Martha, his sisters. The seventh is the raising of the dead at the time of our Lord's crucifixion, which we read about in Matthew 27, which tells us that the bodies of the saints rose and were walking in the streets of Jerusalem during this time. And of course, the eighth is the resurrection of our Savior from the dead. Is it a coincidence that there are exactly eight? It is not a coincidence. We know that seven is the number of perfection. So before our Savior's resurrection, there are seven accounts of raising someone from the dead. That is the perfection of raising mankind from the dead. But number eight also has a significance, as I've told you before. Eight is the one day beyond the seven. We know that the Lord created the world in six days, and he rested on the seventh. And ever since then, seven has come to symbolize human time. But the eighth day is the one day beyond the seven. And so the early church fathers liken this day to the eternal day, the day that will never end. And this is why our Lord, we say he rose on the third day, yes. But we can also say he rose on the eighth day. Because when you consider the week before his crucifixion, Saturday to Saturday was seven days. But our Lord rose on the first day of the next week, or the eighth day, seven days and it's the day after. He rose on the eternal day, the eighth day, and this is the day that ushers in eternal life for each and every one of us. This is why if you notice the ark that is on the altar, the box, so to speak, that we place the chalice inside, it has eight sides. This is why if you go to a lot of the ancient churches, you will find that the baptismal font was purposefully made as an octagon with eight sides because the idea was we were baptizing a child or an adult into eternal life, into the eighth day. This is why the eighth day has a significance in our Orthodox theology. So there are eight accounts of the raising of, of the dead but seven before the Lord's resurrection. And when you look at these seven, you will see that four of the seven 
were done for the sake of women. Four of the seven were done for the sake of women. And not only that, but let's not forget that it was the myrrh-bearing women who were the first witnesses of our Lord's own resurrection. So when you think about this, it becomes clear that something is going on here. Why are these women so connected with the accounts of raising the dead to life? There are several reasons, but I will share with you only one. Our Lord Jesus Christ came into the world to reverse the curse of Eve. Remember that Eve was the first human being to be deceived and to disobey God. She is the one who gave the fruit to Adam. She wasn't the reason why Adam ain't. We don't blame her for that because Adam had his own free will. But she was the first in that couple to fall. And the troparion that we address in the first hour of the Agbeya, that we address to our Savior, it captures this distinction between Adam and Eve in the fall. We say, you saved our father Adam from the deception and delivered our mother Eve from the pangs of death. So notice the connection in this prayer between Eve and death. Why does this connection exist? It is because Eve was supposed to be the mother of the living. This is, in fact, what her name means. Eve, in English, comes from the Hebrew, Hava, which is similar to the Arabic, Hawa. In Greek, if you read the Old Testament and the Septuagint, her name, like many lovely Greek girls' names, her name is Zoe, Zoe, right? Zoe means life. This is what Eve was supposed to be. She was supposed to be the mother of the living. But because she disobeyed God, she became instead the mother of the dead. And this is why we see women connected to these accounts of our Savior raising people from the dead. Our Lord in his compassion made it possible for the punishment and the curse of Eve to be reversed through his life-giving work. And in all of these stories, we see a clear symbolism of that. And when you understand this point, when you go deep and really think about this, you will begin to have a deeper perspective into women's issues in the church. These questions that we oftentimes ask, why can't women be priests? Why are baby girls baptized 40 days later than baby boys? And other similar questions. You see that the answers to these questions are all centered around the simple fact that men and women are dealing with different consequences of the fall. There are different consequences for men and women. God gave one set of consequences to Adam, and he gave another set of consequences to Eve. It's not that men and women are not equal. God forbid. The church has never said that. They are equal in the eyes of God and in the eyes of the church. But equal doesn't mean absolutely the same. By all means, men and women are equal. We have St. Pope Corollos, we have Tamav Irini, we have St. Luke, we have the Holy Theotokos. We have many beautiful examples of holy men and women. And that teaches us that indeed 
They are equal. But we can say that the widow in today's gospel, we can say that she is in good company because our Lord raised her son out of compassion towards her and towards all women. And by doing so, he reversed the curse of Eve, who had become the mother of the dead by her actions. Third and finally, brothers and sisters, let us speak about the funeral procession in today's gospel. The holy evangelist Luke tells us about this funeral procession in verse 12. And when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. On a literal level, St. Luke describes for us what is happening. There is an actual funeral procession that was traveling outside the gates of the city. On a deeper spiritual level, however, this funeral procession represents our funeral procession. It represents mankind's movement towards death and despair throughout history. In a sense, this funeral procession is ours. It represents how we, in our human history, after the fall of Adam and Eve, how we gravitated towards death, how we had no answer for death. When our Lord came across this funeral procession, he stopped it in its tracks, and he offered hope. Our Lord's action in raising the son of the widow of Nain was, of course, a prophecy concerning his own resurrection from the dead. It was through his resurrection that the funeral procession of human history was stopped once and for all. Without our Lord Jesus Christ, our entire history is just one long funeral procession. But with our Lord and his life-giving work, this funeral procession is stopped forever and all of us have hope. Sadly, however, brothers and sisters, not everyone wants this funeral procession to stop. Not everyone wants to embrace the hope that our Savior offers. In our society, we are living in what the Roman Catholic Pope John Paul II called a culture of death. We are now living in a society that exalts and celebrates death. There are people in our country, more than 50% perhaps, who are pushing for the right of a mother to kill her baby in her womb. There are people who are pushing for the right of a person to commit suicide and end his or her own life. There are people who are pushing for a way of life that is so empty, that is so full of sin and corruption, that a person who is living really is not living at all. The person is dead, even though physically he or she is alive. But because of sin and because of a cold heart and because of not caring, they really are dead. As I told you before, there are several ways of living our lives. We can live and hope to be one of the living living. Who are the living living? They are the saints who lived on earth correctly, and now they live in paradise. We can choose to be the living dead, and these are our loved ones who lived a good life, but now they have reposed. Or we can choose to be the dead living, 
These are the people who are physically alive, but they are dead in their souls, like so many in our world today. Or we can choose to be like the dead dead, the ones who did not live their lives accordingly, and now they are dead in Hades, waiting for the eternal torments. The choice is ours, but there is a powerful force in our society to try to make us like the dead living, try to make us live with sin and corruption so that we care not for our souls. Brothers and sisters, we live in a society that embraces the culture of death. Didn't we see that clearly last night on Halloween? If I had told you a hundred years ago before Halloween came become such a commercial holiday, if I had told someone a hundred years ago that there is a country of 300 million people and they will decorate their houses, their schools, their workplaces, and their stores with skulls and vampires and werewolves and ghosts and evil, and they will dress up like them, and then they will watch movies where someone kills other people, and they will do this all in good fun and smile and be happy. If I said that to someone a hundred years ago, they would have thought this was the nation of the devil. But today, it's not a big deal, right? Today, it's normal. Everyone is doing it. Why do we have to be the weird ones and so strict? But objectively, this is celebrating a culture of death. And this is not what our holy fathers would have envisioned for us. This is not what the saints would have expected of us. Our country is a culture or pushing for a culture of death. We've made drugs that are harmful legal so that people can have as much of these drugs as they want. We encourage people to rebel against God. And this is why, brothers and sisters, we Christians must be different. This is why we Christians must be the children of the light, the children of life. We must show people the alternative, that we do not need to live in a culture of death, that there is an alternative in Christ and hope for eternal life in Him. Let us remember this, brothers and sisters, as we see all that is happening around us. I don't know if you realize this, but I think there is an election coming up soon. I don't know if you've heard. And in this election, there is great potential for violence, for people to lose one another in senseless arguments, for people to rejoice over one another in an unchristian way. I want to encourage you not to be like this. I want to encourage you to get off of social media and not to debate anyone, but to spend these coming days in prayer to pray that whoever the Lord chooses for our country, that this person will be softened in his heart towards God and towards the church. Because this is our litany. This is what we pray for in the church. This is how we should spend the coming days. Not rooting in the violence, not explaining violence, not being people who debate one another in a bad way on social media. No, this is not us. We are Christians and we have to reflect the light of Christ even in the midst of a hotly contested election. 
May God grant us the wisdom to do so as we bask in this blessed day when we remember our Lord's compassion and his authority over death and the life that he offers to each and every one of us. And glory be to God forever. Amen.